the fighters themselves as individuals each have their own unique fan base. And a lot of them in some of their own countries are actually pretty big stars. Some of them have Instagram followings of over 100,000 followers from tiny countries. So when they fight, it's an actual newsworthy event in their country. I think giving people the power to have some piece or ownership behind a specific fighter that they really love or either because this guy's representing their country or their religion or race or something like that is one of the most powerful things that you can offer a fan. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hello, and welcome to The Wild Show. This is Andrew Shu, and joining me are co-hosts, Lee Chang and Will Chang. How's it going? Hey, guys. Today, we have Phil Huang with us. Phil invests and advises protocols and companies in decentralized finance, such as privacy-focused railgun project. He's also a board member at Karate Combat and co-founder of DeFiCon. Karate Combat is the first professional full-contact karate league. It's signed over 100 of the best karate fighters in the world, focuses on new kind of cutting-edge video production, and has millions of diehard fans. DeFiCon is New York's first nonprofit conference with a mission to elevate the ethos of peer-to-peer crypto. Its goal is to create curiosity, spark ideas, drive new Web3 projects, and also bring top protocols, investors, activists, creatives, and more to speak and participate in panel discussions. Phil, thanks for coming on. Welcome to the show. It's great to meet and speak with you guys. Thanks for having me. For sure. So first, I'd love to hear, how did you get on the board of Karate Combat? It's not that crazy of a story. Actually, my best friend started it, and he was just looking for some help and some people to help them get it started off the ground. So I'd already been looking at leaving my previous job to start my own business and things like that. And I thought it'd be a lot of fun to work with your best friend and to also jump into the world of startups and raising money and doing all of that. So I kind of jumped at the chance to go and help them. And I spent almost two years getting it off the ground, raising from a bunch of people, pitching a lot of different funds. And it really was one of the best experiences to have and to go through that for a small startup company at that stage. Definitely. What was your pitch? How did it get refined after so many years? (laughs) I think it's the more and more that you practice and go over every different aspect of what you're trying to get across, the better and more polished it gets. And I think a lot of it is just making it more efficient and being able to get across as much meaning as you can in as few words as possible. And it's definitely something that I don't think comes naturally. I think you just got to get used to talking to people, talking to strangers, talking to everyone. And also after every time, just review and reflect on how it went, what could you cut out, what you could add, stuff like that. But like everything else, it's just repetitive practice, you know, and you get better and better at it. Totally. Can you actually tell us what the pitch is? Karate combat back then, it was just a brand new sport. It is one of the most widely practiced sports in the world. Every single kid that you know in elementary school or something has done karate 
or their parents put them in karate. You know, so you've got probably the most practitioners in the world. I think it's like 150 million people practice karate at some point in their lives around the world. But there is no professional karate league. There is no professional sport for them. So you have all these people that go through, spend their lives training. They just had it as an Olympic sport for the first time this past year. And there's nothing, nowhere to go for them professionally after their amateur career. A lot of them are forced to either learn how to do a bunch of other martial arts and transition to MMA or just find another occupation or something like that after spending their whole lives training. So that was one thing where we just saw there was a massive opportunity and a, and a gap to fill. But it was also on the sports entertainment side where every other combat sports league has and still is just trying to be number two UFC. There's nobody that was doing anything really innovative around the space aside from doing things like dragging old has-been fighters who are 10 years out of their prime for some kind of exhibition type of fights, which really, if you're a fight fan, it's not that exciting to watch. And it's kind of just sad to see these guys who are so past their prime, like, oh, you know, they're just doing it for a payday or a paycheck. And it's like really putting their health on the line. These guys are like in their 40s or 50s. And that's the only other competition that there is to the UFC, which is a multi-billion dollar company. So we looked at the demographics, focus grouped everything out, trying to see what young people, Gen Z, liked. And a lot of it was shorter fights, more knockouts, things like that, and presented in a non-traditional way, like everyone has been used to for the last 60 years for boxing, just the way they film it and shoot it and everything. So we changed everything that we could. We changed the rules. You know, we made up different rule set, which made the action faster, more action packed, more KOs. It's all stand up striking. The fight goes to the ground. We found that a lot of people who weren't super knowledgeable and didn't know what was going on in terms of like MMA and jujitsu and stuff like that. We're not interested in seeing two guys wrestling on the ground for an extended period of time. So after five seconds, we have the ref stand the guys up and reset it and they start fighting from there. So we made our own arena, which is a pit, and we patented that. And everything that we did was focused towards what younger viewers liked and what they wanted to see. So that's how we created, you know, the different rule set and stuff like that behind it. And, you know, a lot of that at the beginning was also shooting it in exotic locations and with cinematic movie cameras versus your standard sports broadcasting cameras. So from the get-go, it had this video game type of feel. We intentionally wanted to make it look like a Mortal Kombat, different scenes, different stages in the video games that we all play it growing up and sort of like all the movies that we watched in the 80s and 90s, like Kickboxer and Bloodsport and stuff like that. But since then, we figured out that it was actually a lot cheaper not to have the fights in a different exotic location every time because it was incredibly hard for us to set up the production in a totally new area and with totally different crews for each event. So the first five events we had first one in Budapest, 
Then we had one in Miami. And then we did the Zapion in Greece. Then we came back and did one at the top of the World Trade Center here. And then one in Hollywood. And really after that Hollywood one, we were just like, all right, this is too much work and too hard to nail costs down, switching it up every single time. So then we decided to make it virtual and started using Unreal Engine and shooting it at a staged location and having a crowd in there. And since then, that has been one of the best things that we ever did with that. I actually watched a bunch of the videos on YouTube, especially the Neo Tokyo one. These Neo Tokyo videos have like 1.6 million views and the background, it really feels like the arena is in like Blade Runner, futuristic Japan, right? And yeah, it's really amazing actually. And then the way that it's shot, it really feels like something out of a movie. It's Yeah, you're right in terms of it's not shot normally. It feels like very cinematic in the movie. And then also the background people that are watching it, they all look like the part too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We have a lot of interesting looking crowd members. There's like a fan favorite, this guy that has a super long beard. Everybody tries to find it in every fight, but he looks like Saruman from, uh, from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but there's a lot of Easter eggs in the, not the Neo Tokyo scene, but there's another Tokyo background that we did this past season. And it was sponsored by Sushi Swap. And we had all these little different Easter eggs in the background for people to find. Yeah, I just want to say it's super cool. Definitely anyone that hasn't checked it out should go online. It is super cool. So one thing you said that was surprising to me, and I don't know if I should be surprised, but you said that there's close to, or there are 150 million karate practitioners worldwide. And I'm just curious how that number breaks down for one, because I feel like it is pretty ingrained in US culture, right? I feel like a lot of kids growing up, like that was just like an after school activity to do. So I feel like that's something that we already, as a culture in the States, are very familiar with. So I don't know if it's like something that seems to already have made a lot of sense for you guys, or is it also globally kind of how that breaks down? Yeah, sorry. It's 100 million global karate participants. And in the U.S. especially, I think you see like a Tiger Shulman's on every street corner in the suburbs, stuff like that. I think it's just one of the easiest things that, parents can sign their kids up for. And I think a lot of the values and culture, like discipline and respect, things like that are especially what a lot of parents want their kids to learn. I think that's a huge reason for why karate is so popular. I think there's 45% more karate participants in the United States than MMA practitioners or people that practice that. Those stats are pretty amazing when you look at it and that see that there hasn't been anything like this done before until we came along Friday combat. Can you talk about the fighters? Just so to give us a little bit of context in terms of the caliber of fighters and how you're able to get them. Yeah, these guys are the best of the best, which is also another great movie. If you guys haven't seen that one in the <laughs> 90s. But they are literally, we've got Olympians and guys who have won multiple world championships and things like that who are signed up to fight for karate combat. And a lot of it is because there is no professional outlet for these guys. So the typical career path, once you're done with your competitive career, is to either try and learn 
other martial arts and transition into MMA, which is very difficult at an age where they're ending the end of their sport karate career, or a lot of them open up their own dojos and instructors and things like that. So now they have this new alternative where we pay them very well and they get to continue to practice karate and just on a different level and in a different manner. So you're attracting all these top fighters and y'all have been so innovative with how you've set up the fights and filmed it. Are y'all also thinking about innovating from a compensation standpoint or looking to get into Web3 or the metaverse? Yeah, I mean, I think nowadays it's obviously a much better time to consider all of these things. And I don't think it was even possible to do what we're looking at doing right now and and in the midst of doing, which is we want to transition Karate Combat into a DAO and bring it into the metaverse and let all the fans own a piece of the league. And I think our goal is to be the first professional sport and not just professional combat sport, but first professional sport to turn its league into a DAO. And I think when we do, people will see just the enormous power that it has to be able to give fans a piece of ownership. Like you could never see an NFL or an NBA or any other league giving up this immense power and profit to their passionate fans. So that is what we're aiming to do. Yeah, that's really exciting. I'm curious what decisions or evaluations had to be made by the founding team to kind of help you agree to move it into a DAO? Yeah, I mean, it's those guys, they're my best friends and they are the ones that were really going after this and wanting to do this because they're also big fans of crypto as well. So, I mean, it was easy being on the board and they're talking about this plan and all of us are like, this is the time. This is what we've been basically doing with the league and we didn't even know it. And even the way that it was filmed, using a real engine from over two years ago. It's like, I see these new projects in crypto and they're all like, oh, it's NFT project game using Unreal Engine in the background, or people are doing some fantasy league or something and they're using this. And I just laugh because I'm like, well, we have an incredibly popular sport that we're going to make into this and it's going to be an actual real sport with professionals and the best athletes in the world. It's not like you have some amateur people that are playing like a fantasy football or something like that. And these guys probably couldn't even make it in like the backup league for the NFL or anything like that. It's like, no, you're getting the best fighters in the world and they're going to be fighting in the metaverse. That's awesome. Totally. And then as that transition's happening, what events should fans be looking for? Can you speak to that in terms of where they can invest or what future events will likely happen? You mean where or? Yeah, kind of where we'll skip timeline, but just investment opportunities. Will they be investing in the DAO? Will they be investing in fighters specifically? Yeah. What future events have you all been thinking about once the DAO transition is complete? Yeah. So we want all the fans to have a stake, not just in the league, but in specific individual fighters. So what we noticed is that the fighters themselves as individuals have each have their own unique fan base. And a lot of them in some of their own countries are actually like pretty big stars. 
some of them have Instagram followings of over 100,000 followers from tiny countries. So when they fight, it's an actual like newsworthy event in their country. And so I think giving people the power to have some peace or ownership behind a specific fighter that they really love or either because this guy's representing their country or their religion or race or something like that is one of the most powerful things that you can offer a fan. It's like, you know how the Green Bay Packers have different shares that fans can own of the team. It's like not real ownership. Like they're not actually making any money off of that. We want people to be able to do that. And then also they would be able to make profits and stuff off of these fighters. Fights. Totally. And then my last question on this, are you already prepping fighters to understand how they can market themselves? Or is that a little bit too early and you're still just focused on getting the basics done before starting to teach them? These guys are super adept with social media and stuff like that. A lot of them are already think of themselves as running a business, which is themselves, their careers and stuff like that. So I don't even think that we need to really prep them much at all. I think they're already deeply into that. So that should be a natural transition. That's really cool. Sweet. So if folks are looking to watch the videos and keep an eye on where to invest in the future, where should they check out Karate Combat, Phil? You could go to karate.com and you can also go to the YouTube slash Karate Combat or Instagram has a lot of short clips that are great to watch. Karate Combat Instagram and we're on TikTok too and picking up a lot of viewers uh, via TikTok. Yeah, I love it. Um, I love how fast paced it is and all the different locales. So I'll definitely be watching that. Yeah, you guys will see a lot more of it soon. Awesome. So switching over to DeFiCon, DeFi conference, as described earlier, New York's first conference dedicated to DeFi covering a ton of different topics. Also the first nonprofit, which donated it all to charity, I had the pleasure of attending it. And it was just blown away kind of by the breadth of all the different topics and the different speakers that were brought on different panel formats. So Phil, what was the origin of DeFiCon? What inspired you and your co-founders to start it? My two friends, Alan and Ed, that I founded it with we had been going to a lot of different conferences around New York, around different parts of the country. It was always a very similar experience where I think most of the value add stuff was happening outside of the actual conference. And it was in the hundreds of different private events that people were throwing at the same time as some of these big conferences. And conferences themselves, we looked at and it just seemed like they had become this value extractive type of event where everyone that goes, you're paying $1,000 or over $1,000 to attend. Many of the speakers are not really speaking about anything that's super cutting edge or new. A lot of them are just kind of up there with their 30 slide PowerPoint, which is basically the same PowerPoint that they use to pitch a bunch of VCs. And they probably paid $10,000 for that 30 minute slot to go up on stage and talk about it. And so we just thought that we could do a much better job in terms of bringing things and panels and topics that people were actually very interested to hear about 
but at the same time, not be just extracting money from people. And I thought this is something that crypto has had a problem is most normal people or normal friends and relatives that we have, you know, kind of their first thought and first impressions of crypto when you mention it to them are that it's something bad because it's either money laundering or gambling or, you know, it's a bunch of degenerate gamblers just pulling off Ponzi schemes, right, on, e on each other. So, you know, all they know is that people made a lot of quick money off of this thing and it has kind of a bad rep. And I really wanted to do something that could change that. And I think giving money and doing charity and raising funds for philanthropy is something that not enough people in crypto are doing. Most of the ideals from early crypto was to, you know, provide more access and open finance up to everyone and just to broaden the scope of people that could access these things that they could build real well using these tools. And our hope was to bring that focus back to helping people and bringing more access and making things more open. And that's really what our mission with DeFiCon was. Andrew, I wanted to actually get like a take from a events audience standpoint, right? I didn't make it, Lee didn't make it, but you actually went to DeFiCon. What was that experience like from getting the entrance ticket, being part of the Telegram group, all the way to attending? Like, tell us a little bit about what DeFiCon was like as a participant. The best way I'd put DeFiCon at first is it was stealth. There were hints of it, whispers, and we weren't sure if it was real because we saw it on like a couple, I think, local New York crypto posts. And then me and my wife, Shah, were following it and we couldn't really tell. And then we hopped in the telegram and then we saw folks were just putting out the different guests that they were bringing on. So big time NFT collectors, investors, founders, different regulators, folks making policy. And we're just seeing it slowly gather steam. And then we're like, all right, I think this is real. And then it was in Bushwick, which is the crypto center for New York. And then a couple other folks in the community were like, all right, yeah, yeah, this is real. We're getting tickets. And then from there, the next thing was actually that the access to the conference was actually made by Austin Seneca, who's the artist for Board Apes, Board Ape Yacht Club, which is pretty famous. So that was a nice little, oh, wow, is this real? That was also another like, I cannot wait to see this moment. And sure enough, like if you check it out, the unbearable bears are the graphics are amazing. The detail is really, really cool. And there's little Easter eggs throughout. That was actually a topic that I wanted to ask Phil about just because All Seeing Seneca is like very famous. And then I know people are curious about the NFT. And also people have been now jumping into the Discord for DeFiCon because Seneca was starting to talk about her project. Anyway, so that's the actual ticket. And then we go to Bushwick and it's a cool venue. It's underground, pretty hip. And then just great. There's all these different panels on people riffing on their favorite NFTs. There's different partners getting up and discussing what they're seeing within the space. There are folks, CEOs, <laughs> giving amazingly rousing speeches about going bankless and explaining why it's so big, getting people super fired up. We had folks from the Hill come and talk about how actually crypto policy is being created and then how you can come and influence and like who to speak to and how the system works. We also had regulators come on and explain how the regulations were working, how the goals of kind of regulator offices, how it works, how to think about it. So 
it was just really cool because it was this huge breadth of topics and people there were so open. It was just great. You would kind of talk to each other and there's a lot of good energy. So it was a really cool conference. It was over two days and each night there are kind of different parties sponsored. So you break out and just meet random people. But like, I think because it was, I don't know if it was fully underground, there were a lot of people. It just felt very close knit. Everybody was immediately ready to talk to you. And that's why I was really excited when we were leaving the conference. I actually met Phil and I started like talking to him because I was so interested in like how he put it together, how he brought together so many different broad bases, how he thought about structuring the panels, because some were like moderated. Some were obviously friends that just wanted to riff on the space. Some were just fans. Some were shilling, right? Shilling thoughtfully. But it was like so diverse in terms of the topics, the people, the structure. That's why I was really excited to bring Phil on. Yeah. I remember you being so excited when you told us about your experience. I'm very curious, Phil, from a conference hosting standpoint. So can you talk a bit about what went into that process? You mentioned seeing the deficiencies or the potential kind of shortfalls of conferences in the past. And I think all of us have been to conferences of one sort or another. So we kind of know the general structure and flow. What exactly did you guys do in terms of trying to make it better, essentially? Yeah. So when we first basically started talking about it, it was really only end of the summer. And I think it was after we went to Bitcoin Miami last year, we were just sitting around and we're like, man, there was like 20,000 people here. The minimum ticket price was like $1,000, but it went all the way up to $20,000 for a well pass. These guys brought in easily 25 to like $35 million, that three-day conference, and probably made a profit of more than $10 million. And if you compare that to like every other conference, you're like, wow, these guys are actually a huge business, right? And most of these people throwing the conferences are like big media organizations and stuff like that. So all this goes to their bottom line. So along the lines of why we wanted to make it a nonprofit and just do the exact opposite of what all these other conferences were doing, we had to structure things a little differently. And obviously that started with the entry ticket, which was an NFT. We really thought hard about making it something, and it, it still blows my mind that it worked out really well in this way, because it's exactly what we had thought about and what we wanted to happen, and which was to sell an NFT, but that would still retain like some secondary value to it so that even after the conference is over, if the attendee still has something that's worth the value at least of what they paid to mint it. And so people are minting these for 0.1 ETH was what we were selling them for, which was, I think at the time, like less than $300. And a few months later, a lot of them were able to sell them for 0.5, 0.6 ETH. And so this is probably the first conference ever that people basically got paid to come and talk about DeFi and crypto and hang out. And if you wanted to flip your NFT, you could pay three, four X with it a few weeks on that. Yes. I just want to make a comment is I actually bought Unbearable Bear for DeFiCon. Ah, uh, thank you. I live in Los Angeles. I didn't go to DeFiCon. I just had an NFT. <laughs> and then when Luxware first came out, you had to basically, in order to claim the Lux token. The airdrop. Airdrop. Yeah. In order to claim the airdrop, you, you had to offer something for, as an NFT and so I decided to use the unbearable bear to... Oh, you sold it. And so I did. 
by accident because I was like, okay, there's no way the value is going to go up to 0.2, right? So I bought it at 0.1. There's no way it's going to go up to 0.2. So I just listed it up as 0.2. And then I was like, okay, I'm just going to leave it there. And then I forgot about it. And then Seneca came out with this article about how she did the Bored Apes art. And then that NFT shot up like crazy. And then I was like, crap. I was I went to looks rare to basically take it's it gone. off the listing, but it already sold to point two. And then it, everyone, all the other NFTs were like at point four, point five already. And I was so sad that I lost it. My access to DeFi con. Uh, and it's just paper hands over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you had one for at least a little bit, but sorry that we couldn't make you like another two thousand dollars. I mean, I was hoping I could kind of come to DeFiCon in perpetuity. I wasn't planning on selling it, but unfortunately it did sell. But I mean, Seneca is super famous, like Andrew said. How did you get Seneca to do your NFTs? Yeah, so I mean, that was completely random too. So when we had this idea of making an NFT as a ticket so that people could have something that was still worth something after the conference is over you know, versus a ticket, which is worth nothing, you know, as soon as the conference is done. So I was looking up different artists and the Bored Apes artist, there was a person that said that they were the main artist behind the Bored Apes. And I saw this other collection that they did and it looked nothing similar to the Bored Apes. So I was like, this is definitely not the guy who did the art. So I went down a rabbit hole for a whole day trying to find the real artist behind it. And I finally found Seneca's Instagram. And I was looking at some of her older work and I was like, this is definitely the girl that drew what everyone sees as like four days. So I shot her an email and I was just like, hey, I'm putting together this nonprofit conference. It's the first one. It's small. And it's not going to be much. We'd love to do an NFT as ticket. Let me know if you're available to chat or something. So she emailed me back like the next day. And we had a phone call and then we met up at this coffee shop and she's just super cool. Also Chinese, like the rest of us. And she's just such an amazing artist, but she's like a really amazing person too. So it was like great to be able to work with her. And she told me about her experience with the board apes and designing for them and kind of was a sour experience, I guess, for her afterwards with that. And so I just wanted to make sure that we made it and set it up in a way that she could benefit from her art, you know, just as much as anyone else. So we split the royalties on any secondary sales that go straight to her. So in that way, as long as the collection is around and people are buying and selling, you know, she sees benefit from it. So I'm happy to have done that. And I think every artist, because this was never possible before, and now you can do it with NFTs. It's just such a game changer. Yeah. This is the first time I've heard of NFT as a ticket, but also the concept that a beautiful thing about it is that it will retain its value. And if the, actually the event is strong, it will actually go up. And like, yeah. I, I guess it's obvious, but it's a great kind of call out and a, a nice new concept. Well, what I drew it out, I was thinking the other problem with most nonprofits and things like that is that they're always constantly in the mode of having to fundraise. And it's no matter what, they have to have some fundraising event, whether it's like a big gala dinner or something like that. And it's 
every year. They have to keep having that because they have no other way of really generating the revenue and whatnot to continue the missions, right? But if you do something like this and you have an NFT that becomes popular and things like that, you can create a stream of, of revenue from that in perpetuity, like as long as it's popular and stuff like that, and it's being traded, you can receive a portion of that. So it puts you on a much different path to almost being sustainable. And I think with every subsequent DeFi con, we're going to be doing similar things, but also analyzing how we can change it and do it better and stuff like that. So after we have maybe three or four of these, there will be a few collections out there that people want to have a piece of and maybe has other benefits in either attending different events that we throw, being able to talk to and network with other like-minded people, you know, who are interested in DeFi or in crypto and philanthropy, any of those things. Totally. So I know y'all are planning another conference. Does mm -hmm. the original Unbearable Bear provide any access or anything special for the second conference? Yeah, so it'll be a massive discount on a ticket or next NFT that we have for the next conference. It'll also be able to, so we're going to have a few events in between. So the next conference is going to be August 11th and 12th, the end of the summer. But before that, we're going to have a few, probably two, maybe three different events in and around New York, where we have probably one panel or two panels of speakers. And just, you know, we're looking at like maybe 40 to 50 people to just come hang out, have some drinks, listen to people talk about crypto and really just shoot shit, just get to know each other. That's great. So how are you thinking about the interim panels and evolving the panels or speakers and formats for the next DeFi conference? A lot of what I've been thinking about lately is just how we can influence public policy, not just the overall reputation of DeFi and of crypto, but specifically how politicians and people that make important policy decisions and regulatory decisions about it view it. And it's not really the people who are already in crypto who I think we need to reach or educate. It's all the people that have their very first impression of crypto. This is clearly used for buying stuff on Silk Road and drugs and illicit things and doing money laundering and blah, blah, and all things that have been debunked and are just not even close to being true. But yet it still has this power in narrative for a lot of different policymakers. And how can we change that? We have a number of good lobbyist organizations like Point Center or Blockchain Association, but is that enough? And I think it is one of those things over the next few election cycles, we'll see that almost every younger person that I know, crypto is one of those issues where a lot of people, once you understand it, you do feel like super passionate about it. And you're like, I will vote for the person that is supporting this stuff. So yeah, one of the organizations that we actually donated to was Civics Unplugged. And they do a lot of educational work with high school students. And that's one of the avenues where I hope that we can set up some of these panels, maybe with some educated super crypto knowledgeable 
teenagers and some of our elected officials, because I think you'll see very interesting discourse happen if you can get those two types of people in a room. My dream would be to get Elizabeth Warren on a panel with just some genius 17-year-olds that know everything about DeFi and crypto like in and out and just have an open discussion, debate. I did not see that coming. Can you give us more? What other innovative concept are you thinking about in terms of the panel? I love that. So that was uh, one that I'm trying to do in between now and the next DeFiCon. But other things are just people who are building in the community and working on projects, just stuff that we're interested in. The beauty of DeFi and just crypto in general is it's the intersection of so many different specialties that are all just colliding. Economics, politics, art, culture. There really is something for everyone. And to find those things that different people are interested in, I don't see it as, oh, there's this NFT community that has nothing to do with the people that are building DeFi protocols that has nothing to do with Bitcoin and, oh, your Bitcoin maxis and ETH maxis, stuff like that. I think they're all under one roof. That's why it never makes sense to me that there's so many different gatherings and conferences that are like for specific things like a specific L1 and they have to have their own conference. And then all the other L1s have to have them. So then if you're going to these things, you're going to a conference every week. There's one every single week around the world. But really, it's going to be a multi-chain future. And all of these things are going to continue to coexist. So why can't we just have everybody gathered in one place? And I think the easiest way is if you're a nonprofit and you're not run by any company that has an agenda to promote one thing or another, we just want like people to have healthy discourse about different things and be able to have those conversations. I've actually gone through your DefiCon 2021 speaking list and you have a lot of impressive guests or panel members, right? Whether it's Andrew Wang, who is this really famous NFT influencer, to people from Congress, senior policy advisors, to the program lead for esports at Axie Infinity. Your background isn't in crypto, right? And so I'd imagine that your network wasn't this deep. How did you get everyone to agree to come to your conference? We did a lot of cold emailing and reaching out and friends of friends, things like that. I mean, Commissioner Purse was the most random shot in the dark ever. I just emailed the generic SEC email address, not expecting anything. And then Two months later, I got a reply and it was like, oh, Mr. Purse says she's willing to be a part of it and speak at your event. And I was like, what? That email I sent out, just not expecting any response at all. So then we we're like scrambling to set up or to find a moderator, someone that's smart enough and knowledgeable enough to even be on the other side of the conversation as her. I mean, it wasn't even until one week beforehand I think I had either DM'd or hit up every single credible crypto lawyer in the space on crypto Twitter, everything. And everybody was just, who are you? What is this? Not really caring about us at all. And so finally I got uh, Jason Kalib and he's the nicest guy ever. He's like, oh yeah, I'll come. And he came down just for that hour that he did that and that he just left. But it turned out so well. <laughs> yeah, I love how 
you're really looks like trying to bring in the entire ecosystem kind of to show the different perspective and how all they fit together. Just because I'm interested in frameworks, do you make a list of all these different concepts that you are hoping to bring together? How do you actually think through and track and make the list of folks that you reach out to? I think a lot of it is mostly stuff that I am personally interested in, but I have a wide variety of interests. I am interested in the whole NFT space and everything like that. And I didn't start out that way. I actually thought it was incredibly silly at first. And I started out, my whole crypto journey was, was like a Bitcoin guy, just holding it, holding it. And then, you know, I got into E, a little ripple. And then, you know, you just go down the rabbit hole and then full-blown shitcoiner at one point, you know, in 2017. And then 2018 comes and then you become that Bitcoiner again, Bitcoin maxi, you like only Bitcoin, right? And you just realize like, and then there's DeFi summer and it was like, wow, mind blown. This is incredible. You're back into it. And you just realize there are so many incredibly smart people that are working on every single different type of project that you can imagine. I think it wasn't until 2019, 2020, crypto is drawing the brain power from every single other sector. Fang tech, like now people are talking about it all the time. Back then you would see it. Even a lot of my friends who are traditionally pretty conservative people, like I have a lot of friends who are lawyers and I have a few of them have crossed over and gotten into crypto and gone to work for crypto companies. It's like a generational shift in just thinking. And it's still so nascent and it's still so early when you just think about the total market cap of all of crypto is like only $2 trillion, like nothing. That's like a single company size almost. It's just incredible. We're in this space. You guys have a whole podcast about this. We're talking about this stuff all the time. And yet most people still have not crossed over or dabbled it. That was a very long-winded answer, but I pursue and I think about which conversations I want to see and who I want to bring on to have these types of conversations. 100%. I feel like that worked out really well. It sucks I wasn't there, but to your point, everything that was on those panels and on the schedule were like topics that I'd be interested in, right? So it's like very broad range, but I feel like it's very noob friendly too. So for like anyone that's curious and coming in, like you guys covered so many different things. And I feel like that is opening the door in the fact that, I mean, of course, there are other conferences that are nonprofits, but I feel like that probably did help you get a lot of those speakers as well. So I feel like, yeah, you guys did everything right in terms of making this conference be inclusive. Right. And not be this oh exclusive club where if you don't know what a Bitcoin is from an Ethereum, then you're not one of the cool people that should be here. So, yeah, I think you guys did a great job with that. Yeah. And then I just wanted to comment on something you said is that it is brain draining a lot of the different sectors. It's not just the fan companies, but it's also the finance, right? Mm -hmm. Not just finance, but it's also law. It's not just law, yeah. but it's also artists, street artists like Tristan Harris or Shepard Ferry. It's not just artists, but it's also all different types of sectors. And it's TikTok influencers. TikTok it's influencers. like Instagram. Yeah. It's like athletes. Yeah, athletes. It's yeah. Crazy. Yeah. VCs. Every sector is being 
dragged into this space and it's all encompassing. Yeah, I think every single VC, their latest funds is some variation of a Web3 thesis or metaverse or something like that. And we're just still so minuscule, like the total market cap that you can't help but be like the entire space is going to do 100x over the next 10 years. It's just how can it not from where we are now? I mean, I came from pretty much real estate and investing in real estate and got into crypto and DeFi via that route. All of my TradFi friends, they got into it through that route. And it's people have very similar journeys where it's like you buy that first piece of a Bitcoin or something like that. And then you start reading about it, read like the Bitcoin standard. And then you're like, I should explore more. So then you go, you buy something else. You read more about that until you're up at like three in the morning reading some Twitter thread about the latest Olympus or they're like, I gotta get into this five times an APY. <laughs> One year of this and I could retire. <laughs> Wait, so on that note, Phil, personally, what are you excited about? What are you interested or fascinated by in the DeFi space right now? I'm really fascinated at the intersection of different things. So I do think NFTs where I forced myself to spend time on it because I had dismissed it so quickly at the beginning and missed out on CryptoPunks, all these super early easy projects, which you could have made a lot of money on, which I was like, oh, this is just silly. So now just all the different things that you can do with NFTs and especially after DeFiCon, just going through the whole process of creating one and going through the contract and making generative art, things like that. There's so many further applications that you can do on top of the base NFT, which we're starting to see come out now. People are doing under collateralized loans via holding an NFT, which the NFT is almost basically proof that it's like a social credit or something like that versus your in real life credit score and identification, things like that. Or you can use an NFT in Web3 as your form of identity. So you can separate your actual personal information from what you're using to interact with things in the Web3 space. So today we have all these Google single sign-ins or PayPal and stuff like that, right? You click and it knows like your name, your address, your birthday. You give them basically everything to like buy one little thing. Soon we're gonna have the ability to basically have your little avatar or something that you want to represent you in the internet space and online, be who you present. And like, it'll have an attestation that like, yes, you're like KYC AML and like you have funds, things like that. But other people interacting with it won't know everything else about you. And I think that's one of the more interesting things I'm looking at, things like that, especially when we're talking about the metaverse and people gravitating to online communities and spending more and more time on that. And if you've watched Ready Player One and read the book and stuff like that, I do think that's somewhat part of our future and will happen that people spend more and more time existing in that world. You know, whereas right now, probably people our age or our generation are only used to like gaming, right? And gaming, it's still very similar like this. You see people maybe online 
stuff like that through video cameras, but you're not existing in the metaverse where you can go do other things. So I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the space. What about you guys? I'm sure you guys all have different things that you're honing in on. I think there's two things that are really interesting to me. Well, first of all, it's the NFT PFPs. I'm like mm-hmm. really big into that. Understanding the social game being played, the status game being played. I actually have a podcast about how NFTs have value and basically why is like a JPEG worth so much, right? And then the second thing that I'm really interested in is the DAOs, where they're attracting talent, right? Whether it's the gaming DAOs, whether it's like the service DAOs, like Vector DAO, or basically people that have a specific talent and they're aggregating all that talent together and basically monopolizing the market so that they can basically be the kingmakers in the space. And so that's really interesting to me as well. Cool. Yeah. I think what you're saying that NFT PFPs, it's almost like social cred where instead of having some huge watch or something like that, now people are like, oh, I want to have like a board ape as my profile picture. And or instead of having that flashy car, it's like, yeah, I've got a $250,000 profile picture. Yeah, I mean, it totally is like that, right? And the thing is, you get, honestly, much more usage, social cred digitally because you're Mm -hmm. more people see you digitally, right? Whereas in a car, you have to actually drive to the car to see the person in order to get that social cred. True. The total addressable market so much bigger for a social (laughs) cred. Yeah, so you're (laughs) definitely getting more bang for your buck. Yeah. This is like the new sales pitch when someone's trying to sell you one of these things. (laughs) (laughs) I've got an Azuki to sell you. (laughs) What about you? I think for me, there are two things that stand out. One is DAOs and how they're going to actually change how people work. Mm -hmm. Because I think that it actually enables companies, founders to automate rules that if done well, let someone can scope work and then let someone take it on and be paid accordingly in ways that previously might have been too difficult to like scope or automate. So basically you can get more and more fine grained at letting someone do what they specialize in and really love and the create value for the DAO and then also for themselves. So I think that's one. And then the other is actually community is so inherent in the success of Web3 projects that I think it's just going to evolve and speed up ways to improve a community interacting with itself and also supporting itself. And of course, like in the digital space, given it's Web3. So those are the two that I've stood out to me that I'm excited to see the outcome of. And then I think the next would be like the NFT because it's just a piece of art that can do so many different things. So like the concept you brought up today, like I already knew it was a ticket, but I'd never thought like just a little switch flip of like, oh, wow, it's actually, I forgot it's art. It'll actually maintain value depending on like how that event went or if there are continued events. So those are the items for me. Yeah. And then just to add to that, I think the whole DAO thing is fascinating because I feel like personally, I've started getting involved with DAOs and then just all the hype around it. I think it seems there may be a few DAOs have kind of figured it out, but it seems like everyone's still trying to really in practice, right? In actual implementation, execution, what that actually looks like. Everyone's still trying to figure it out. And coming from like an investor background, I think it was always interesting when you work with younger companies, when they get to a stage where they're like, oh, now you got to bring in the adults into the room, right? You bring in corporate execs to show everyone how it's done. 
that was always, for the most part, a very natural progression. Of course, you do have the guys like Zuck and whatnot, right, Elon, but they're kind of like the outliers. So how effectively DAOs can actually be implemented, I'm very curious to see. There's always that concern. I think a lot of people are talking about how it may or may not be necessarily a good idea or a good implementation for different types of organizations, right? So Mm -hmm. because of the transparency and because of the complexity of implementation, so all that will play out, I think is, is super interesting. And then secondly, I think in terms of even stepping back and talking about the metaverse, right? Like how that really is going to manifest. I don't know. I mean, like with like Decentraland and like Sandbox and stuff like that. Like I'm very curious ultimately how that is going to either encompass all these things we're talking about, whether it be like NFTs, gaming, having DAOs, guilds all intertwined in that, just how that ultimately is going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I'm really excited about this space. Yeah, well, that last one I had been thinking about a lot last few weeks just because, I mean, Meta just came out and said something like they were only going to give creators the Meta platform 47% or something of their earnings. And I saw that and I was just like, all right, that's clearly going to fail. And these guys are just operating off of a business model that is just, that's the past. Like nobody's going to want to do the future of metaverse is to me is just going to be an open metaverse where everyone can build and compose on top of each other's protocols and projects. So I think the tooling behind that, a lot of it is being built and it's not necessarily going to be like Decentraland or the Sandbox or something like that, but it'll be things like I saw the altered state machine project with the AI brains and being able to use that AI in other NFTs. Like, wow. So you can train an AI and use it in one NFT for like a little football game. And then you can take that and bring it to a different game where you have to train it in a different way. But that's your artificial intelligence that, oh. And so it kind of changes like game changers when you think of things like that and think that different plug and play, it's going to be the components that are just open and accessible for everyone to use that I think will be the most popular. Because why would anyone want to build anything on Facebook or Meta when someone else is going to own your stuff? Like, what's the whole point of what we're all doing? Right, right. No, that's totally on point. Yeah. So I want to take us back to the conference really quick. And this is a slightly self-serving question. How do you prep the guests that you bring on? So for DeFiCon, we'll usually work with the moderator of the panel, or if it's just like a group of friends or something, riffing, we'll just talk to them, put them in a group beforehand and get a list of questions that they can ask. It's actually pretty similar to what you guys do for the podcasts. So everybody has an idea of what's going to be asked and what themes of the topics are going to be or what direction they're interested to take the conversation. But yeah, we never try and like throw some crazy surprises people out there yet. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) totally. Uh, We have thought about it. (laughs) Maybe a DeFiCon 3. (laughs) Yeah. And then you're saying how much you're hoping to bring this education and new, these new concepts to kind of folks more new to the space. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking about innovating in how you market to find these folks and bring them to DeFiCon? I think it's mostly about just 
meeting people at like different meetups in the city and different gatherings. And you do come across a lot of people who are new to DeFi and new to crypto and just being inclusive and welcoming of them and, and inviting them to show up and come. Yeah, I had a few, a uh, bunch of students that we had met at one of the like oldest blockchain or Bitcoin meetups that my friend runs downtown. And they all showed up and some of them said that they couldn't afford tickets. So we were just like, just come, I'll put your name on the list. And, you know, we probably had over 70 people that between students and blockchain clubs that we just let come to DeFiCon for free. But we also had some companies that would sponsor blocks of tickets for them too. But yeah, that's super important. Everyone I talk to, I try to get them interested in it on their own. My cousins that are here staying with us. Christian up in the fridge. <laughs> yeah. I just got them to buy their first eat last night. So they're here staying because my grandfather's funeral was today. And I got them on Coinbase. They bought it. And then it immediately dumped today. <laughs> and they were like, oh man, $300 is worth like $270. Amazing. But I'm just trying to get people interested. And I feel like if you just have a little bit of it, it gets you interested in learning more than you like. You can make your own kind of research. I love it. So after the conference has ended, y'all are a nonprofit. You already mentioned one organization that you donate to. Who have you donated to? And how has that process been? So the whole process of starting a nonprofit and like all the paperwork and just tax filing and everything. One of the most like asinine experiences and pains in the butts that I've ever done. And it's just so much stuff and paperwork just to create something where you're like giving away money. And it's, it's like a full time job, just setting all of that stuff up, which obviously didn't realize before we started it. But afterwards, the best feeling in the world is handing an organization like a hundred thousand dollar check and especially ones that you feel very connected to the mission that they're doing. So we've donated to Civics Unplugged, Heart of Dinner, which they package and deliver groceries to elderly Asians, elderly Asian seniors across the city since the start of the pandemic. So basically people that I think of like my grandparents and stuff like that who can't go to the grocery store or things like that. And then Our Kids, which is an organization that helps the wives and kids of incarcerated people and it helps them. And then also She256, which is are involved with uh, promoting women into doing more programming and coding and stuff like that. Love it. So given, I know you all threw it. I saw you at the end. You look pretty beat. And then I, <laughs> you're already ready to do the next one, which is awesome. What After lessons? the first one, I was like, ah, man, this is too much, man. I don't want to I wasn't going to say, yeah, you look pretty tired. I was like, wow. So there was only three of us who were, who basically ran the entire thing. And I was moving furniture, unfolding chairs and doing all this stuff that I didn't even during the conference really have any time to talk to anybody else. Making sure the cameras and the web stream was like, okay, and stuff like that. So after the first one, I was like, the next one we do, I don't want to have to do anything during the conference, just be able to talk and interact with all the people around. So we're definitely getting more people involved. And I think we hope to bring in 10 to 15 different volunteers and people to set up panels or organize different things and just help us out. 
it's funny actually. Speaking of volunteering, oh, Will I was and say I, the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were chatting before this recording. It's kind of funny, like Will, myself, and also Phil, we're all in Beijing at different times. Yeah. But yeah, when Will and I were out there in 2011, like we were actually volunteers at uh, TechCrunch Disrupt in Beijing. <laughs> and awesome. I was going to say, yeah, it's a great way to get people involved, you know, if that's already part of your goal, right? And I think yeah. there's going to be a, a ton of just like interested folk, whether they be like teenagers or college kids or whatnot, that would love to help out how they can just to be able to sit on the conferences, right? Yeah. So I think we were in the NBA and... Yeah, we were like, we're not paying for tickets because TechCrunch was like a lot. And so what's the best way of getting a free pass? And yeah, there's a volunteer. If you're a volunteer for like four hours, you could go to the entire conference. So we just did that. And there's a lot of people that did that. So you could probably get free work by offering that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's awesome. You know, what's also hilarious is that Seneca, she grew up in Shanghai. She's actually went from Shanghai to New York. All of us were at some point, except for Andrew, missed out, you know, spent, <laughs> spent you know, some good time over there. You got to go. What were you doing? You didn't go study abroad or? People ask regrets. I think that's the only regret that I have is that I didn't study abroad, truthfully. Everything else, good and bad, pretty stoked about. It's fine. <laughs> I've learned. This one, I was like, yeah, totally fucked up on that one. <laughs> at least a few months, two months, three months. Yeah, totally. Did you go to school in California or on the East Coast? Or I something? went to school in Texas. Uh, Texas. Yeah, UT Austin. And then oh, I moved wow. to California and then I also moved to New York. So, pretty... Are you from Texas or? I am. Yeah. Where? <laughs> Houston, Dallas? Houston. Houston's got a lot of a big Asian community there. Yeah, it's super diverse. It's actually one of the most diverse cities, I think, is what people don't realize. You just have to drive around quite a bit. So you have to know where the, the places are. I've never been to Houston. That's one it's a good of the... spot. We should go. I'll take you to different spots. We'll just have to drive. Are there any holidays or things that are worth going down to Houston for parades or? <laughs> mm, so I think then Houston wise, it would be the rodeo is a big event. Crawfish season is a big deal. Hunting season, if you're into that. I think those are actually the items that stand out to me because also the weather is kind of the same for the most part year round. So. Yeah. Or the next time that they are good at the NBA or something. Don't, let's not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, Phil, where can people go if they want to be volunteers or if they want to get the latest on the next DeFi Con on August 11th and 12th or some of those small events you were mentioning? Yeah, they can go to the website deficon.nyc or Twitter page probably has the latest updates, which is DeFi underscore conference and also our telegram, which is on the main website. So we disperse a lot of information through that. But right now it's August 11th and 12th. We'll probably start selling tickets and we're always looking for people to help out and volunteer in whatever capacity they have. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no, it's great to chat with you guys again. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Right, thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, WLD.SHOW. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you. 